My brother walking in said, uh, "Is this is this name of the cl- is the name of this class? What's up with the new guy? Because it seems like a lot of people are here checking me out." I can feel like you're here maybe to listen to the the message, but to really figure, you know, there's lots of analysis going on. I feel it. I feel it. And it it feels a little exposing. So I'm just going to press through that. Uh, I'm glad many of you, well, a lot of you came back. This is awesome. Um, I got some great comments and feedback about last week's lesson. Uh, I wonder what kind of, even if just small effect it had on your own worship experience today, thinking through what we talked about. We talked about um, realities about worship, particularly about what worship is with regards to encounter, that God's really there in the worship service. We kind of deconstructed our own societal thinking that forces us to kind of move in a direction to not believe God is there because we've, we've uh, kind of been what we said is disenchanted with reality, modernism has taken its toll and therefore we're the kinds of people that tend to think naturalistically and secondarily, only supernaturalistically. And for that reason, we tend not to, you know, just anticipate that when I walk into uh, the sanctuary of the people of God, that God is going to do something extra special there to me and with me and that God is really present. And we ask the you know, question of, if God's really present in worship, what does that mean? What does that do to us? And so today's lesson that we're going to talk about today is worship as war. And it actually goes hand in hand and nicely with what we talked about with worship as encounter. And then next week we're going to talk about for the third installment, worship as death. So do you like that? It's kind of nice, huh? <laughs> you know, I start, I start with kind of the softball of encounter and then we go to war and then we go to death. And then it's all done. And I, I'm finished with the, the lesson. Uh, hopefully it's actually intriguing enough for you to come. But today we're talking about worship as war. And I want to begin sharing a little bit about my own biography of what used to be more often, maybe we're getting sanctified, but I don't think so, but what used to be more often a regular occurrence on Saturday nights. Sa- I call them Saturday night fights. It's kind of like Friday night lights, Saturday night fights. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it was it was a while back, but it, it it seemed like a string. Every Saturday night, my wife and I would get into a fight, and she's here right now to keep me honest. Her name's Abby. Um, she says it's true. <laughs> my wife and I would get into a fight. We'd be fighting about something. Money, raising our kids, we're not giving each other you know enough love and affection and blah, 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 all that stuff, all that important stuff. Uh, and it it got to the point where, for me, we'd be... We'd be in the middle of that and it would be the kind of thing where I'd go to sleep on it and then I'd wake up the next morning and it would really cast a a cloud over all my leadership on Sunday morning, all the things that I was doing with regards to the liturgy and just being a pastor and a music leader. Uh, And it was something that kind of disrupted our whole uh, reality for us as worshipers, me and my wife on Sunday morning. And there, there got to be this point where Abby and I both woke up and smelled the smelling salts of what was going on. Because we were disenchanted people, (laughs) we forgot that there is a real spiritual world in and around this physical one, all around us. There is a war going on. At least that's what the scriptures say. It's not just mumbo-jumbo. It's not just hocus-pocus. There's a real war happening. 
And frankly, the devil doesn't like worship very much. And so he's going to do things to throw wrenches into that equation. Um, and maybe you have felt the same way I did, that your Sunday mornings seem a little bit more stressful than any other morning, that your roommate or your spouse or your kids or your parents, something goes awry that seems to throw a wrench uh, into coming and approaching the Lord in the beauty of holiness. I want to approach the Lord and strangle my wife, you know? That's kind of the way you feel in that moment, right? It doesn't feel very reverential and purposeful when you're kind of in the throes of that stuff. And I'd like you to open with me to Matthew 4. Look with me at Matthew 4. She wants to strangle me too. This is, a, this is equal opportunity strangling. Uh, Matthew 4. Very interesting that in the narrative of Jesus... As soon as he receives his call to ministry and is baptized, what is the first thing that happens? The Holy Spirit leads him. The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, right? And if we look at Matthew 4, starting at verse 8, the, whole, uh, the devil comes to Jesus and tempts him one way and then another way. And this is the final way, you know, this, this final moment that the enemy is tempting Jesus Watch what Satan is after. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and what? Worship me. You see, the enemies, um, on the enemy's surprisingly long list of job descriptions is a first bullet point. And that first bullet point is to rob God of all the worship that he is due. And so when you imagine that special encounter that we talked about where God gives his gifts to the people of God in a special way through preaching, through sacrament, and shows up in his presence through song and other things like that, when God chooses to do something unique and special among the people of God on a weekly basis... You can imagine that the enemy who hates the worship of God hates the worship of God. Why? Because he wants it for himself. You can imagine that that enemy is going to do everything possible to derail the experience. For that reason alone, I think it's, it's strong enough to argue that worship is war from beginning to end. Worship is war from beginning to end. Look with me at Ephesians 6 a passage that many of us uh, have heard. Ephesians 6, verse 12, which is part of the armor of God narrative or the armor of God writing that we'll get back to. He says, For we do not wrestle. And he's speaking to the church here, so this is God's word to us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Turn over to Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Don't forget that this is a hymn. This is a worship song. Psalm 144. This was meant for the people of God to be sung. And how does it open? Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands 
for war, my fingers for battle. You read in other places in the Psalms lots of warfare imagery. And of course, these have to do with the psalmist's very real physical enemies. But they also have to do with the enemy and his minions. And here nestled into God's inspired hymn book, the only hymnal that's fully inspired by God, are songs about war. In fact, think what the, the very first song, arguably, in the scriptures of the people of God comes just after a major defeat of the Egyptians. And out of that defeat of the Egyptians, when the sea comes crashing over them, in Exodus 15, out comes a song. Praise be to God for He has hurled the warrior and the chariot into the sea. So don't tell me that worship isn't war. It really is war. And when we think about war, and by the way, hopefully I'll leave time for kind of questions at the end. That's my goal. When we think about war, uh, I, I actually think there's a historic Christian practice that helps us to understand the three fronts of worship's war. And it's embedded in our baptismal liturgy. That's a very ancient liturgy. Now, when you and I uh, receive someone who's a new adult or professing convert into the faith, they or their, their parents, if it's an infant, make certain renunciations. Do you know what they are? There's three of them, actually. These are the questions and answers that we all ask and receive at our baptism. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce all sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. Ancient Christianity called this kind of the, the, the trifecta of evil that is warring against us constantly. The devil, the world, and the flesh. Some people say it's sin, flesh, the devil, but we'll call it Satan, the devil, and hell. The world and the flesh. And those three things I would like to start thinking about as the three fronts of worship's war. And if we think of uh, a war in the physical term, if you've got multiple fronts for a war, you're thinking about how they're dealt with individually and how they're dealt with together. So, if worship is war, that means that we've got these three things fighting against the connection of the people of God and the encounter of, of Him. And so if we looked at the battle against the devil, think about this for a second. If you read your Old Testament, physical war and spiritual war share a common ancestry. And what I mean by that is you and I live again in a, a, a de-supernaturalized age where as a result of us not sort of living in the world where the natural and the supernatural interacted more freely and were felt and understood like it was by the ancients. We don't see it the same way that the ancients did. 
But the ancients didn't necessarily have sharp lines divided between physical war and spiritual war. In fact, if you recall the Old Testament narratives about the Ark of the Covenant, that the reality was in the ancient Near Eastern mindset, the presence of the God of your own nation was localized often in a place or an artifact. And for the people of, of Israel, that place was the Ark of the Covenant where God chose to dwell. When it was time for one nation state to go to war with another nation state, they would bring, literally bring their gods out to war with them. The Ark of the Covenant would go with them into battle. Why? Because every nation state knew that ultimately war wasn't nation state against nation state. It was God versus God. Whoever won, their God was better. Whoever lost, their God was worse. That was the idea. You know, it's this, it's this pantheon going on and, and each nation state has their own God and they're, they're warring. And so even as physical war is taking place, it's a very spiritual activity. You read it all over the Old Testament that it looks like that. Think about this for a second. This is, a, this is something more mystical, but would have stuck out especially to the ancient Jewish readers of the Scriptures. When Abraham was first called by God out of the place that he was into the, into the promised land, the eventual promised land. Abraham entered into a city. Uh, let's turn to it there, actually. Genesis 12, if you've got your Bibles. And I'm going to read this encounter and pay attention to the cities the way an ancient Near Easterner would, would have a, a sense of place and physicality. Genesis 12, verses 6 through 8. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so Abram built there an altar. So Abram worshipped the Lord there who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Okay, this was a really significant moment in the life of Israel. Israel would have remembered this. And because they understand their own geography, they would have remembered these places, Bethel and I in particular. If you were to... So Abraham sets up an altar here. He worships the Lord here. Something supernatural has taken place here where God is worshipped, right? And now, interestingly, if you fast forward through Israel's narrative to Joshua 8, there's a, there's a real big battle that takes place at Bethel and Ai. And it's kind of the gateway to Israel's conquering of the rest of the promised land. And one can say that Abram's worship at Bethel and Ai as one theologian put it, was the pre-conquest of Canaan. Think about that through the lens of worship now. We live in a place where God's kingdom has been inaugurated, where the people of God live in the inauguration, but not the fulfillment of that kingdom. We're stepping into the promised land, which is the people of God. And when we gather together, we worship Worship is that pre-conquest of the earth. Worship is that moment where God stakes a claim 
in this world and says, I will do war here and I will conquer the enemy's territory. You know, so when we gather for worship, do we have a sense that we're gathering under our general Jesus and under our great commander, God the Father, in the power of the Spirit, knowing that what we're doing as we do it is engaging in battle? If you were to look at 2 Corinthians 20, 18 to 23, uh, sorry, 2 Chronicles 20, this passage is really interesting because here you have Israel again going to war. And during this time, all God tells Israel to do is what? Worship. Get busy worshiping, and I will get busy conquering. And it is while the people of God are worshiping Him that God routes and conquers their enemies such that when they kind of finally look up from having sung and prayed their praises and thanksgivings to God, all their enemies are routed. And the reality is, as you and I fix our eyes and our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God is actively, actively doing war. If we remember that Satan really hates worship a lot, every time you and I gather for worship, our physical worship incites spiritual rioting. When the people of God worship the supernatural realm erupts in frenzied activity. That's the idea of part of worship's war being a war against the devil. Because God's doing stuff in human hearts that Satan doesn't like. Because God's orienting our hearts, our crooked hearts that have been wandering throughout the week, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. God in worship is aiming us back at the source of where our worship belongs. And that kind of leads us to this next front of the war, the battle against the world. Listen to how one worship theologian, one of my favorite worship theologians, a continental guy, a European guy, his name is Jean-Jacques von Allman, uh, he says this. This is powerful. Every time the church assembles to worship to proclaim the death of Christ... It proclaims also the end of the world and the failure of the world. It contradicts the world's claim to provide men and women with a valid justification for their existence. It renounces the world. It affirms that it is only on the other side of death to this world that life can assume its meaning. On the other side of death to this world, that is, in the resurrection of Christ. Worship is an affront. Listen to the, I'm going to read this sentence again. Worship and what God does in worship contradicts the world's claim to provide us with a valid justification of our existence. It renounces the world. When we gather for worship, do you hear those words clearly that challenge the world in us and the world out there? Because you and I are literally hell-bent on justifying ourselves. We go day in and day out casting the blame elsewhere, seeking a place to be able to stake my claim that I truly am. I can stand on my own two feet. I can pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps. And part of what worship does is deconstruct that lie. Worship tells the world that you can't live up to it. And if you started opening your eyes, and I think this church does a good job of teaching us to have great radar for the way that self-justification works in this world. 
But if you started opening your eyes to the 10,000 ways that our culture is constantly speaking a word to us to tell us that we can sort of do it on our own, that we don't need God, that actually, you know, religion's just a crutch. And by the way, I'd, I'd love to say to the one who said that, uh, for me, religion's more than a, a crutch. It's resurrection because I'm dead, right? The reality is, the world is not wanting to acknowledge that we're really bad as we are, and unfortunately, one of the non-seeker-sensitive things that the, the, the worship service must say, the Word of God must say to us, is that you, you're dead. You can't do it. You can't live up to who God asks you to be, what He calls you to do. You can't do it. And that's an affront to all our self-righteousness and our, our man-made, woman-made self-salvation projects that we all have, all the ways that we're sort of veering away from saying, Lord, I need you. All those things, worship says, death to you, because you actually won't find life there. And so I encourage you to listen for that word and those words as they come to us in worship, because worship's there to proclaim that reality. And if worship is so soft that it doesn't say that to the world, God help us. Why? Because it's without that first word that we can't hear the second about our glorious Savior Jesus Christ. It renders the gospel pretty impotent unless the law, which says, world, you can't live up to it, does its work first, right? So that's why we talk a lot about law and gospel here is because this war, this front, the front of this war, requires the law to come in and do that killing work, that crushing work on all of us. Worship tells the world that it's going to die before it will live again. It proclaims the futility of our pursuits apart from God. All the political craziness that's going on right now. I mean, if, if, if we're kind of political junkies, we're watching the channels and getting all hyped up about it. And worship is there, in a sense, to relativize that. It's not to make it not important, but it is to say all, all the ways that we're getting worked up about who our new president is going to be or who's the next leader, sometimes we're, we're getting so worked up about it, we're, we're starting to put our salvation eggs in that basket. And God is there to knock that basket over again and say, salvation is found in Christ alone. I will have mercy upon you because you need it, because you're getting too worked up about these things. Worship relativizes these kinds of things in our, or just your job. And what's going to happen next in your job and whether you're pleasing your boss well enough or whether you're, you're kind of making it happen. As you get worked up and you start to sort of get into that realm of trying to save yourself and, and, and control the surroundings, God is there to say, your salvation's not there. Repent of that and find it again in Jesus Christ. It's that word that's a, a constant affront to the world. But finally, the third front is the battle against the flesh. And we've kind of already been going there. In fact, I would say that in many ways, these three fronts aren't so easily divisible. Even though we renounce them in baptism, they're kind of all mixed together. Because the reality is, as God is challenging the world in this proclamation and worship, He's challenging our very flesh, as, as Paul calls it, the sin in our members that remains in us, that is actively resisting the word of total grace. And saying, God, don't I bring something to this equation? And worship is there to say, no, you don't. You don't bring anything. Think about this for a second. And this goes into a, an understanding of what idolatry really is. But you and I don't stumble our way into sin. We don't somehow sort of kind of wondered, whoops, I just sinned. 
it's actually more proper to say we worship our way into sin. Think about that with me for a second. Think about anything that you've done that you feel pretty embarrassed about right now or something this week where big or small, you got there and you knew you transgressed, you trespassed, you went over the line. It's ultimately not about whatever that thing was, is it? Because there's something if you drill down deeper into your own heart, like I do mine. I'll get, uh, so yesterday, alright, confession time. Yesterday, um, when I, I just, Abby knows when I start doing home projects, I get irritable. And it was nice. Abby said it in the most nicest of ways when we were sitting down for lunch and the kids were just like yapping at me and Abby's like, Kids, daddy's been working really hard and he's a little irritable, so just kind of lay off with some of the questions. And she said it in this sweet voice that was so disarming and I loved it, right? So big project. I was super nervous because I've never done it before, but we dug this huge three-foot hole and I'm and we're pouring concrete into it because I'm getting ready to put in an in-ground basketball hoop. Again, never done it, super nervous, but trying to give my boy who thinks he's going to be the next Steph Curry, you know, the, the, the hoop of his dreams with the least vibration because he's, he's upset about the vibration. It's not like an NBA, you know, it doesn't sort of bounce the way an NBA hoop would, right? Um, and so all the kids and I are out there. They're marveling at how deep the hole is. They want to jump in. It's just slowing down the project. And I'm get there done, you know. I'm wanting to, like, get it done. And so, like, my nerves are frayed. I'm on high alert. And I'm just being short with them, you know. I'm like, get out, grab the bag, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just... All my anxiety and anger, and just it's coming out in 10,000 ways on my kids. I can tell they feel the pressure, and they're messing around with the hose in the yard, and it's getting all muddy, and I'm nervous about the whole work site, you know? It's just, it's, it's like Lord of the Flies out there, and I'm the one guy that's trying to keep things organized. But I'm, I'm just blowing it. I'm blowing it. It's the day before Father's Day. Here I am building this awesome hoop for you, son, and all I can do is wallow around in the mud, you know? Like, just stop it. Um, and so I'm losing the father battle. I'm transgressing. I'm passing over. And you could think, yeah, the sin is the, the, the anger. The sin is the way I'm yelling at my kid. But ultimately, I love control. I worship at the altar of control. I worship at the altar of neat and tidy projects that have no errors in them. You know, I worship at the altar of everything put in its proper place. I love that stuff. And because it has the affection of my heart, you know, don't you see? You see how this is working? We don't sort of stumble our way into sin. We worship it. The reality was my, ch- my kids were challenging my God. And I didn't like it very much. The God that I worshipped, I wanted to stay in his spot so that at the end of the day, when my son's shooting hoops, I can look at this perfection and marvel at the awesome monument to my own glory, right? <laughs> That's how I wanted it. And that God was being challenged by my kids. My kids weren't the problem. My idol was, Right? We, that's, that's how sin plays out. If you're honest with your own heart in 10,000 ways and were to drill down and ask the Holy Spirit, I've confessed, now we're going to go around the room and all of you are going to confess. <laughs> if we're really honest about all this stuff, this is what the, the war against the flesh really is. And guess what? It's all over and all in our worship services. The Psalms of Ascents, interestingly enough, Psalms 120 through the mid-130s, these ones that have the inscription, a psalm of ascents. There was a geography associated with singing those psalms. There was a progression because oftentimes it was associated with the people of God hiking up the hill of Jerusalem, sometimes from far away. But the reality was as the people of God would hike toward Jerusalem and sing these songs of ascents, they would have to pass by physical idol vendors 
And they would have to say, instead of going to those, I am going up to meet the one true God. And constantly renounce the flesh that wanted to go in those directions. That's very much what's happening in our worship services. And this is where um, I'm going to get a little personal. And we're going to talk about the subtlety of the spiritual war before I get you all angry and then you can ask some, some questions. Um, there are a lot of things that are in our flesh that whether we know it or not, come out in worship and actually do His work for Him by robbing God of the worship that He deserves. I've always been in churches where people are pretty particular about worship. And the reality is, when, you're, when you've done sort of your, your biblical homework and know what worship should be and do, it tends to be that you and I spend more time analyzing the worship service rather than engaging with God and, as Deborah was talking about this morning, listening to the still, small voice in worship. We're quick to find the things that were wrong, that were off. And believe me, I know, because I get your emails. And I get, uh, in my old church, they were prayer cards, right? And people would be like... <laughs> and, and on these prayer cards, they'd write things like, I pray that the organ would be softer next week. And the reality is, it's, it's probably true. Things could be better all the time. But the reality is, when you and I choose to sort of fuss over that stuff, who loses? Well, we do. And he wins. Because he's successfully taken your eye off of Jesus and onto a myriad of much lesser important things in the worship service. And you and I all have our little pets about why we love what we love. You know, whether it's, whether it's for some of us, it's just like keeping our kids quiet. Just be quiet. Don't explode. You know, the first Sunday I was here with my whole family, we were at every service. And by 11 o'clock, all we were doing was like bomb containment. Just don't <laughs> explode. I'm the new cannon. Like I don't want bad impressions, all that stuff. And the reality is there's just all kinds of ways. And, and to give grace and absolution to the moms and dads who are in the little kids phase, we all know what it's like. And we, we bless you to have loud kids in the pews. It's okay. Worship the Lord and know that it takes a while for everybody to figure out how this all works. You know. And so, one of the things that you, brothers and sisters, can do is remember when you were in that position and grant relational absolution to the people around you by laughing it off with the parents, by blessing the parents and go, I know how hard that is. They can be as loud as they want. Give them permission, you know? Um, and now I'm sort of coaching about all the worship distractions, but I'm gonna I'm gonna let it sit there and let it uh, be something personal for you as you think about all the things that you and I could analyze rather than jump into the stream of engaging with God in worship and realize that that's actually part of the war. That's actually part of the war to strain under our general Jesus to engage with the liturgy, to remain focused on the prayers. Uh, to hear these songs and to let them wash over us, to sing mightily unto the Lord with our whole hearts, you know. Hearing a sanctuary that's filled with the voices of God, that's war. That's what we're doing right there, and it's beautiful. The final thing that I want to say before I open it up is there's ultimately only one way to fight this war on all three fronts. God has given us only one weapon. If we were to turn back to Ephesians 6, and read about the armor of God. I don't know about you, but I grew up in churches that preached the armor of God like this. You know, um, 
they told you that it was your job, as, as the scriptures say, to put on the armor of God. And then they proceeded to tell you the ways that you put on various things. Like, be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God as it commands. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand everything in the evil day. So stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And so the sermon will immediately say, how can you be more truthful? How can you be more righteous so that you can stand strong against the enemy? And then after that, you know, stand therefore and uh, as shoes on your feet, having been put on the readiness by the gospel of peace. So how can you be more peaceful? Right? The reality is, if we were to go through every one of these pieces of armor, and then we look back on what Jesus taught and what Paul taught about Jesus, we'd realize that these are all components to nothing short of putting on Christ. That the breastplate of righteousness is Jesus. That the belt of truth is Jesus when he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is the gospel of peace. That Jesus gives us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the shield of faith. He's the faithful one. And it is as the word about Jesus is proclaimed that all these enemies start getting vanquished. So listen mightily to receive the word about Jesus over and over again in the worship service. Receive it. All right. So, questions, thoughts, yes, sir. Never really thought about worship and war. Really, eye-opening to think about it in that way. Uh, I wonder if, as modern Christians, we are too content in our Christianity and too apathetic. And I certainly don't think we we pray in the in the concept of collective use of Jesus as our covenant since we don't have a physical covenant Mm -hmm. into war against uh, people who do ardently pray as in war such as ISIS Mm. you know we're now depending on our political people to do it for us we need we need to be more according to uh, the, the feeling that we need to pray in the spirit of war against mm. evil. Yeah. You know, we need to be more organized in, in praying that, that God grant that enemy. Definitely. It, it's embedded in... That's a good point. It is embedded in some of our prayers, in the way that we pray. Well, it's embedded in the Lord's Prayer as well. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There's warfare hidden in there, but I think you're right. Um, and in any question where we get to questions about warfare, it's good to look back on the cross to see how Jesus did war. And that's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God comes by weakness and defeat, as one hymn writer put it. By weakness and defeat, he won the royal crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. What a line. What a Savior. One that we have who wins by losing. You know, And I think that's why God would have us worship rather than be physically militant all the time. 
to realize that we have a cruciform faith, a faith that wins by losing. Because I don't need to justify myself. I'm, I'm kind of free in this moment to not have to uh, right all the wrongs that are being done against me. You know, Because we receive the work of the cross on us in killing us and the work of the resurrection in making us alive. We too can join in that weird, backward, totally contrary to the way the world thinks war of being okay, being defeated in that respect, and knowing that that's from whence our strength comes. Other thoughts or comments? Yeah. Well, again, I think we hear a lot about that we've already lost. We're already on the top side of that. Line. Right. And that the fight is for forgiveness to get <laughs> back on this side. <laughs> yeah. On the slower side. Yeah. Good thought. Yeah. Yes. The scripture tells us to pray. And the scripture says, the Lord says, the battle is mine and the victory. The Lord says, it's his battle. We get the victory. Right. He does the battle. That's right. We cannot do what God does. That's right. And God will not do anything unless we ask Him to do it. Yeah. He said, ask, and you shall receive. So we forget to pray. Yeah. We would rather be fighting the battle. I know. We just listen. You know, we want to fight it. Because it feels good to be doing something. Oh, <laughs> the old Adam, the old Eve, we love to be doing stuff. Right? Yeah. Yes. Right. Which is why the word in worship always needs to be poking at and and directing its arrows against the flesh. Right? That's good. It's a good word. What does it say? I can't even remember the song. Six or four. That God has ordained prey through the children. That's right. And the second half of that is actually to silence the foe and the avenger. Kids? Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Hey! That's a little too close to home. Keep it down. Doug. Is worship war a playoff of worship wars? Maybe. Well, I had a friend who said, we need to stop worrying so much about those worship wars and realize there's actually a war that's keeping us there rather than looking at this one. Yeah. You know, and, and the reality is, as we think about all the things that we're, all our kind of, all the stuff that we get fussy about with worship, it's actually taking our eye off of the reality that this is going on. And that the world, the devil, and the flesh are all up in that mix. And we need to do a lot of repenting. Lord have mercy, we need to do a lot of repenting. Yep. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Stand up. Stand up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll end, we'll end with stand up, you're dismissed. Bye, guys. <laughs>